0: you're listening to the comparative media studies colloquium podcast a production of the comparative media studies program at mit episodes are available in the itunes store but we invite you to see us in person here in cambridge so get updates about upcoming events each featuring top media speakers from mit and around the globe by joining the growing Comparative Media Studies community on Twitter, Facebook, and our website at cms.mit.edu. So I'm Fox Hurrell I'm associate professor here at MIT in Comparative Media Studies, Writing, and the Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Lab. And I have the extreme privilege of introducing an illustrious speaker here today, uh, Mark Deary. So he's an author, lecturer, social critic, who's published in venues as diverse as Artforum, Elle, The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, Wired, and, and uh, many, many more. His most recent book, uh, I Must Not Think Bad Thoughts, contains ep- top- essays on topics as diverse as Star, Trek's, Star Trek fans' elicit fantasies about the hive high- uh, fascist hive mind of alien man machines known as the Borg, uh, the morality of wearing camouflage themed clothes during wartime, and Facebook as uh, li- a limbo uh, of the lost, a space for dead souls. <laughs> right, so uh, t- today he'll instigate questions of the inter- intersection of culture. Uh, social media and dreaded phenomena, such as what we might call the plague of uh, TMI, so the pathogen of too much information, Uh, uh, so the haunting of of our past Facebook uh, yearbook friends, uh, for for example. And uh, here to co-introduce Mark with me is uh, Ian Condry, who will talk a little bit more about uh, some of his past and uh, deeper interest through some of his previous books. Thanks,
1: thanks, folks. Yeah, I guess I I can use this too. I don't know if we need it. Um, So I'm Ian Condry, uh, and I teach in comparative media studies as well, Uh, and uh, it's a pleasure to join Fox (laughs) in introducing uh, Mark Deary. Um, I, I did have a couple announcements that I want to just uh, mention. There is a uh, conference, and I think people who are here are probably likely interested in this conference as well, that uh, Thomas de France uh, here at MIT and Harmony Bench of uh, Ohio State are putting on over this weekend uh, called Dance Technologies and the Circulation of the Social. Uh, and it engages with some of the similar kinds of issues that Mark uh, thinks about, including performance, uh, post-humanity, uh, and the intersection of bodies, art, uh, and technology. Um, and so that's happening uh, over in the Media Lab. It actually starts uh, this evening uh, at, at 6.30, uh, and there will be some introductory uh, t- remarks as well as some performances by MIT students, and then it continues uh, tomorrow and, uh, and Saturday from 9 to 5 p.m., it's also the top floor of the new Media Lab building. Uh, it's free and open to the public, uh, and there will be a dance party uh, Saturday night uh, as well uh, where uh, Susanna Horosova, a postdoc here in writing, will be DJing, uh, and I will be doing a little DJing as well. Uh, so be so music. Um, and I encourage you all to come. It, it does uh, speak to a lot of the themes we'll be uh, thinking about and talking about uh, today. One of the things I wanted to add to uh, Fox's introduction is very useful is a couple notes from his uh, Mark Jerry's book on escape velocity. Uh, So to think about some of the context, some of the history that Mark brings uh, to these issues. Um, And he uses this term escape velocity for thinking about cyber culture, uh, for thinking about how there's a speeding up of what's happening in our world and the way we achieve a kind of escape velocity. uh, Although into what? Uh, is one of the questions, I guess, a cyberspace. A cyberculture is part of it where uh, Mark talks about the ephemeralization of labor and the evanescence of the commodity Uh, and the way this is paralleled with a kind of disembodiment of the human uh, as we spend more time in cyberspace. Uh, And it was really fascinating to read this book uh, and to think about how our language of the Internet has really changed uh, in some ways, in the last five years, we don't hear so much about cyberspace, uh, it seems to me, and we think maybe in terms of the social uh, in new ways, and it's interesting to think what that shift means. Uh, and one of Mark's uh, enduring interests has to do with the way science and technology can create a kind of vacuum, uh, where uh, a spiritual vacuum and societal fragmentation that opens up a space for millenarian or uh, transcendental kinds of art and politics, which he looks at in terms of uh, cybernetics and psychedelia, cyberdelia, Uh, cyberbunk, the the connections between Lou Reed and William Gibson, Uh, mechanical spectacle, uh, a heavy metal theater of cruelty where he looks at artists who create these animatronic roadkill uh, disasters to fight and battle in smoke and grease and fire. Uh, and this, the overall idea is that uh, there, these are subcultures that course between escapism, and these are Marx's words, course between escapism and engagement, between techno-transcendentalism and a politics on the ground. And so his studies are really about not technology itself so much as the stories we tell about technology, the ways we put ourselves into technologies, and the kind of uh, interstices where a kind of cultural project, sometimes jamming, sometimes utopian, uh, can give us a different understanding of our relation, uh, not only to the world and technology, uh, but also to each other. Uh, Mark has also has some academic credentials as well. He's been a professor of journalism at NYU, a distinguished fellow at UC Irvine, and a visiting scholar at the American Academy in Rome. Uh, he's also at work on the biography of the artist Edward Gorey, who I know we all love, uh, and, uh, and we, I know we all look forward uh, to his talk today. We'll ask him to speak for about 45 minutes, and then we'll have an open-ended discussion after that. So please join me uh, and Fox uh, in welcoming Mark Deary.
2: Thank you, Uh, Ian. Would you mind, uh, yeah, opening the uh, yearbook images and just setting them to cycle through? That's great. And if they if they just uh, they can just play all those just within that folder. Uh, Thank you, Ian and Fox, for that uh, suitably mortifying introduction. Uh, which I cannot possibly live up to, and now if I self-immolate messily, um, it will apparently uh, be documented by podcast and no doubt will materialize on Twitter within the minute. Um, These gentlemen, uh, neither of them apparently knew that the other was going to introduce me today, although it does seem uh, fittingly binary for MIT. I'll let you two debate who gets to be the zero and who gets to be the one. Uh, We're doing everything in twos today, so I have two coffees. Uh, Tastes great, less filling. Um, It's wonderful to be here at MIT. Uh, Whenever I'm at MIT, I think of the long shadow it cast discursively in the 1990s when uh, Nicholas Negroponte and his flock of minions were busy extracting sunbeams from cucumbers at the media lab and uh, really molding the discourse about technoculture, especially from his pulpit uh, on the last page of Wired magazine, um, a magazine that was the uh, Gideon Bible or Book of Mormon of the Digerati. And uh, Kevin Kelly helpfully informed us that the Dow would hover at two zillion forever and the long boom would never end. Don't you miss the 90s? So do I. Um, I'm here today to talk about, um, a moment, um, well over a decade later, uh, title of my talk is called Facebook of the dead. And I'm going to be thinking today about, uh, the self and others about identity and subjectivity about social connectivity and corporeality Uh, all those binary oppositions and the chasms between them. Um, I'll be reading portions of my talk and riffing extempore on portions of my talk if I notice your blood sugar levels dropping to dangerous lows. There's nothing uh, closer to uh, rhetorical chloroform than watching someone read a paper for um, what was promised to be 45 minutes, but I suspect threatens to be more like 60 So I beg your indulgence for that uh, over time. I'd like to begin with a quote from Swinburne. Um, We should just be seeing the yearbook images. (laughs) They don't call this MIT for nothing. Um, I'd like to begin with a quote from Swinburne, the romantic poet, who took comfort in the knowledge that no life lives forever, that dead men rise up never and obviously, I believe, the man lived in the age before Facebook, because just when you thought the past was happily entombed, the curse of social networking is conjuring it up. Now, I think this is an aspect of the web, of the search engine, as one of the dominant technologies of our moment, that is less remarked upon than Google's Miraculous ability to pluck the needle from the haystack with second-by-second second dependability. Um, what seems not to be to have been taken stock of is the fact that not only are we able to instantly access free-floating uh, datum. Uh, With pinpoint precision, but we are able to resurrect the past. And this seems to me to be really a sort of a symmetry break with much of history, our ability to reconnect with people who were long lost. And that's both a boon and a bane, as I'm sure many of you will agree. More often not, that knock on your inbox door is the risen dead from your high school yearbook, classmates you thought you'd safely buried in the boneyard of forgotten things with a gentle shovel tap on the face. I believe that Facebook returns us to the adolescent psychology of high school, a regression writ small in the site's insistence on the cringe-inducing use of the noun friend as a verb when the perfectly serviceable befriend is readily at hand. Now, I'm going to offer you a few psychobiographical anecdotes that I hope will be consonant with your own experience on Facebook, perhaps not, Um, but I hope you'll at least find them illustrative. When I wondered aloud why a total stranger from my hometown wanted to friend me, given that back in the dear dead days of high school, we weren't even passing acquaintances... She opened the bilge cocks of her soul. Yes, I realize we never knew each other personally, but I, like you, was curious which alumni were part of this social networking site. Also, living with a disability and not able to work because the work world is prejudiced against hiring someone with a disability, except for those who are mentally challenged, which I am not, in screaming caps. I find the social networking sites enjoyable to connect with old friends, high school and college. Yes, I am a college-graduated sick. Individual I apologize for sounding hostile But I get very rattled when someone questions why I choose to sit in front of a computer 20 or so hours a day Forget I spoke Another Facebook moment someone's rattling my mailbox. What brings him knocking? I'm curious to know pleading early Alzheimer's. I ask if we've met before we've never met he replies Maybe he's read one of my books Nah, he writes, he doesn't really have a clue who I am or what I do. He just mails everybody at random, unquote. Here's another one for the specimen jar. A stranger comes calling. You'll forgive me, I write, but I can't recall where or if we've met. How do we know each other? He's an alumnus from my college, it turns out, though not in my class. Even so he remembers a poetry reading I gave, a quote, a very impressive performance, as I recall, unquote. Weeks go by. One morning, my inbox is pelted by messages. He's broadcasting his friends. Why am I being cc'd on this, I ask, innocently enough. He's quick with his reply. Why are you such a grouchy prick? That's how I remembered you. Am I a grouchy prick? Maybe. Maybe. Or maybe my definition of friend is anachronistic, founded on the superannuated assumption that we reach out to people with whom we feel or felt some affinity, that our social networks grow organically, rooted in a mutual desire to connect or reconnect and twined around common interests or consonant sensibilities, if not a shared history. It's out of joint with Facebook's phantom zone, a sort of being in nothingness, where disembodied strangers pluck at other strangers' sleeves for no reason whatsoever, or because they're curious about people they never knew, or only knew from afar and now want to know up close, even if they always were grouchy pricks. Was the world a better place, I wonder, when everyone lived in Spoon River or Winesburg, Ohio or Holcomb, Kansas and friendships that outlived their usefulness died and stayed dead? Of course, our inescapably connected age has its virtues. Here's an anecdote from my life that's sort of a flip side to the stories I just told. On rare occasion, there's a sort of a table wrap from the great beyond, a Facebook friend request, that reminds you out of the blue of someone you were inordinately fond of, but had lost touch with. Usually, though, that spectral hand tugging on your lapel is someone you didn't know at all. Yes, he went to your high school, but your paths never crossed, likely for good reason. Nonetheless, he feels inclined to friend you, perhaps to pad his roll call of friends, despite the unhappy example of the New York Times writer Hal Nidzeviki, who quote, absurdly proud of how many cyber pals, connections, acquaintances, and even strangers he'd racked up, invited his Facebook friends to hoist a jar at his favorite bar. Out of 700, how many do you think showed? Guesses? One. It was a very lonely tryst. Recently on Facebook, I ran into someone I hadn't seen since his last day at the college we'd both attended, an afternoon curling and bleaching in my memory like an old Polaroid. A lifetime later, the rapport was instant, as if we'd never left that lost world, him telling me about his life as an ER doctor, mesmerizing me with war stories from his big city MASH unit. Frequent and fervent at first, our Facebook exchanges grew gradually more sporadic, and finally subsided altogether? Was our intimate intimate instant intimacy some sort of rapture of the deep and artifact of online social interaction? Does the veiled nature of email or Facebook chat have a disinhibiting effect, like the grill in a confessional or the hole in Pyramus and Tisby's wall? If that sense of connection, after all those years that I experienced was genuine, convincing evidence that the seeds of something profound were sown on that supersaturated afternoon way back when, then why did it tail off? Is it even possible to sustain a hydroponic friendship uprooted from our everyday lives? Once the first flush of all that catching up fades, what's a Facebook friendship's reason for being? To peg the currency of memory to the gold standard of the present? to prove we're not one-dimensional inhabitants of Facebook's flatland, breezily discarding the instant friends of a few dozen males ago? Then again, isn't the objectification of friendship, the reduction of our social networks to so much social capital, indexed to the headcount in our friends list, a kind of an inescapable part of what Facebook does? Certainly, It x-rays our on-site social lives, rendering our stated likes and interests, along with any Facebook pages we connect to, including those expressing support for or opposition to controversial issues such as gay marriage, abortion rights, the decriminalization of marijuana, and so forth. It renders those things instantly visible to, say, potential employers or the feds, whom the Electronic Frontier Foundation suspects are using social networking sites for, quote, investigations, data collection, and surveillance. Moreover, Facebook commodifies our personal info, serving it up to data miners and targeted advertisers. I'm sure to sophisticated digirati like yourselves who were born wired at the gills, none of this is news. Um, but it shocks and amazes most Americans who are unaware of exactly who's trolling for information on Facebook, and who can see their profiles. Most people reflexively check, uh, make my page available to friends of friends. Um, Seldom stopping to think that friends of friends can include district attorneys, CIA agents, FBI uh, uh, agents, and uh, branders, marketers. Uh, Not to class them all in the same pariah category since we have a professor of marketing in the audience. Um... When such revelations came to light in the news media many users were sorely troubled but Facebookers who were shocked by the site's blithe disregard for their demographic details and true confessions uh, hadn't really been paying attention in March 09 Facebook announced that henceforth it would own all user content this is fascinating this is a commons a if you punningly if you will a creative commons a polis uh, a town square That really is merrily in bed or is very much consonant with one of the great cultural dynamics of our moment that goes at least back to the early 90s. Mike Davis wrote exhaustively about this in City of Quartz, Excavating the Future in Los Angeles. And that cultural dynamic is the privatization of public space or the creation of faux public spaces for which the mall food court is, I guess, the sort of ur-polis or ur Co- corporate commons um and so facebook is that great good place right it is the town square that is wholly owned by a corporation and in which all these sort of fulminations and soliloquizations if there is such a noun of uh, people who mount the orange crate in hyde park um, are actually born copyrighted by our friend mr zuckerberg um, so in January 2010, Mark Zuckerberg airily dismissed civil libertarian concerns, noting that, quote, people don't want privacy, unquote. As the web developer Tim Spalding noted on Twitter, why do free social networks tilt inevitably toward user exploitation? Because you're not their customer, you're their product. Most people seem not to realize that, The sort of hoary commonplace of the golden age of madmen advertising is alive and well on Facebook, which is you are not the customer. You are the product being sold to the advertiser in the same way that TV viewers were back in the day of uh, when the rabbit ears was all we had. Um, so then again, but there are sort of contrary invoices. The tech journalist Wagner James Au points out in a boing-boing comment thread, uh, most people are willing to sacrifice some privacy in exchange for greater and deeper social connectivity. Or, to put it another way, since Facebook makes it much easier for you to find and connect with a long-lost friend or family member, paste the anecdote I just uh, recounted. Uh, do you really care all that much that the ads in the sidebar were precisely targeted at you? So it's a Faustian bargain most people are willing to strike. I think the English call it cutting cards with the devil. Ian, would you um, nuke those images just for now? And I'll open another folder in a moment. Um. So I'd like to talk now a little bit specifically about privacy and what um, two web critics, Stephen Johnson and, and Jeff Jarvis, inelegantly and uneuphoniously call publicness um, in the age of social media. And those two points of argument dovetail um, with uh, notions also of subjectivity and identity um and of um individuality and um crowds and mobs and swarms and hives and i'll touch on those things i'd like to use as my a prism for refracting these ideas Stephen johnson's uh, may 20th of last year time magazine essay web privacy in praise of oversharing how many of you read this any of you familiar with it any of you familiar with johnson's ideas The man has a million Twitter followers, right? And in sort of alpha Twitterer uh, style, typically he follows about 30 people, right? So it's always instructive to me that the people talking about the demotic, not demonic, demotic, right, subtext of the new social media technologies, right, ironically are uh, well-rewarded white males who speak, right, and are listened to by millions, right, but attend to a vanishingly uh, small handful of listeners. I find that dynamic instructive because it's the same old historical dynamic that we've had for quite so long. Um, Perhaps I'm overplaying that, but I think that that the idea that it's somehow a lowering of your mercury, if you're a public figure on Twitter, to follow too many people is a fascinating received truth, right? The goal is to be followed by millions and to follow few. And to me, the implicit power imbalance there is fairly obvious. It's sort of an alpha geek phenomenon. So in that essay, Johnson uses Jeff Jarvis, who's another sort of new media pundit, uses his catheter-and-all chronicle of his battle with prostate cancer as an object lesson in the civic virtues of turning our public lives inside out. Jarvis is writing a book about publicness, uh, and he is a devout Howard Stern fan, and so what passes for a wit among the Howard Stern fandom, he's calling his book Public Parts, a title sure to set the table a roar, uh, in uh, Stern studio. So as the drama of his cancer unfolded, Jarvis kept constant reader updated on the anatomy of melancholy or the melancholy of anatomy or whatever it was. Quote, he blogged about the humiliation of wearing adult diapers, writes Johnson. He blogged about his erectile dysfunction, unquote. Did I mention, quote, the harpoon up the ass for biopsies, the garden hose out of the dick after surgery, unquote. These are quotes from Jarvis's blog. To Johnson, this is simply how we live now. We can read the bad news in our doctor's eyes as she looks up from the pathology report. It's the big C. And, quote, this is from Johnson, the instinctive response is, I'd better tweet this up right away. In Jarvis's online chronicle of a death averted, Johnson sees, sees a web-age parable about the value of pub- publicness, a gratingly unmusical word, as I mentioned, but both these gentlemen insist on it. Jarvis opted for radical transparency, even in such a searingly personal matter, because as he told Johnson, there was value that I wanted back from this community. Translated from the original corporate consultant speak, this means he wanted to share his tragedy with his wider social world in search of some buoying compassion. It's interesting how it's sort of translated into the language of the marketplace, right? Soliciting the compassion of your friends and listeners is value added, right, from your audience. Um, Then, too there was the journalist's reflexive inclination to crowdsource his crisis, soliciting what Johnson called specific advice from personal experience, what to expect in the immediate aftermath of the surgery, tips for dealing with the inconveniences of the recovery process, and so forth. So the moral of Jarvis's story for Johnson is that, quote, by taking this most intimate of experiences and making it radically public, he built an improvised support group around his blog, a space of solidarity, compassion, shared expertise. Thus, we must acknowledge that certain kinds of sharing can, in fact, advance a wider public good, I'm still quoting from Johnson here, as well as satisfy our own needs for compassion and counsel. We habitually think of over as egoists and self-aggrandizers, but what Jarvis rightly points out is that there is something profoundly selfish in not sharing, unquote, all of that from Johnson. Now this, I think, is a catheter too far. Uh, the the contention that civic duty demands we narrate the director's cut version of a fantastic voyage up our anal canals is the point where rectum meets reductio ad absurdum. To be sure, Jarvis's decision to publicize his cancer scare as a wake-up call to men of a certain age, a sort of PSA about PSAs, is truly generous of spirit. That said, the unquestioned assumption that, as Johnson puts it, we get news that we're facing a life-threatening disease, and the instinctive response is, I'd better tweet this up right away? What kind of universe are we living in? I, I really think that warrants closer scrutiny, and that's why I'm here today. Jarvis's desire to reach out to his online flock in his hour of need is perfectly understandable. It's a, quintessentially human gesture but his near inability to restrain himself from broadcasting the bad news before his son gets home from camp he managed to hold his fire so the kid wouldn't learn about his dad's disease on twitter says more i think about the bloggeric tweet expulsive times we live in when so many of us feel the need to broadcast our every thought at every minute to everyone that it does about any civic virtues of making our private lives public. A little reality check here. Shouldn't an intimate circle of close friends meet most people's needs when it comes to sympathy and wise counsel? If we zoom out to a wide-angle shot that contextualizes Jarvis's actions in a larger societal landscape, we're inclined to wonder if this tendency toward what I would call arena rock confessionalism, sharing, which, which I would define as sharing our private lives, not just with our closest confidants, but with a stadium full of imaginary friends, right? like Harvey the Eight-Foot Rabbit in the Jimmy Stewart film, virtual buddies, isn't really symptomatic of the culture of confession. I, I, I believe it is symptomatic of the culture of confession that sort of began with the Puritans and persists in afternoon talk shows and, of course, that great Uh, National Ritual, Absolution of Celebrity Sins by Barbara Walters. Um, Is the desire to broadcast the most mortifyingly uh, personal details, not only of our private lives, but of our private parts, really about the desire to feel the love on an epic scale? I think it is. And if so, isn't it selfish rather than selfless? Tea and sympathy from friends and family are all fine and well. But once you've felt that tidal wave of compassion rolling over you in comment threads hundreds of posts long, commiserating with you about having been diagnosed with the big C, can you ever really go back to entrusting your secret pain to an intimate few? I mean, what can compare to that endorphin buzz? So... Thus, what I call sort of arena rock confessionalism. And as for the idea, there's increasingly this notion that everything can be crowdsourced. And this is really a cornerstone assumption of a whole suite of books that's out now. Uh, Clay Shirky's Here Comes Everybody, uh, the Stephen Johnson book about the role of social environments in creativity, um, there's a, a number of books that look at, uh, the, f- of course, the or text in this area is The Wisdom of Crowds by James Surowiecki that begins with the parable of the ox. And Malcolm Gladwell really sort of, I believe, is the progenitor of this, uh, most, in most recent memory, of the parable uh, as teaching tool, which is entirely appropriate for America, where uh, we swim and fish, where the streams of the Judeo-Christian tradition branding, marketing, and salesmanship flow together, right? That's why we get How to Win Friends and Influence People, probably the most cynical book ever written, right? The Sound of Your Name is the sweetest sound to any individual, right? You can tell people have read this book, you meet them at parties, and with also metronomic, tick-like regularity, they repeat your name. How wonderful to hear from you, John. I couldn't agree with you more, John. The thing about that, John, is you're extraordinary. Um, so, if <laughs> <laughs> um, and you come away with this, again, this sort of endorphin buzz of goodwill to this person, uh, simply because he stroked your inner morbid narcissist. Um, but there is this use of the parable in these books, beginning really popularized with Gladwell, and the others have taken it up. Um, and it's entirely appropriate, because they really are religious homilies. So Surowiecki's book begins with the parable of the ox, right? Francis Galton, founding father of uh, eugenics, right, social Darwinism, uh, asks a crowd to guess the weight of an ox. No individual knows it, but together they all hazard guesses and they, they land an accurate guess within a pound of the beast's weight, right? Um, so that we're given to understand that uh, a crowd is always wiser than an individual. Um, it bears pointing out, I think, that not all crowds are created equal. Which crowd would you rather choose? A gathering of the sober, even-handed, deeply reflective, historically literate individuals at a tea party rally? Or, uh, let's say, a Munich beer hall in 1927? Right, Or this gathering of enlightened minds today? Uh, I'll let you choose. Um, So... There, there is sort of a tendency to use these parables, um, and and I, I, I want to dive back into my argument here and look at the idea that the notion that taking the pu- private public enables us to leverage the collective expertise of the million. Um, as I said a moment ago, crowdsourcing is only as good as the crowd being sourced. Uh, allow me, uh, sort of a scandalously a mortifyingly confessional. Uh, parable and anecdote of my own. Anyone who spent a cancer year in full battle rattle, as Jarvis has, and as I have, desperately combing the web for information about his disease and worming every factlet he can out of his overworked doctors, will tell you that the wisdom of crowds is grossly overrated. Unless the crowd in question has answered the casting call for America's next top oncologist... When the word went out that I had cancer, one friend offered invaluable war stories about his close brush with the big C. But too many took it as an opportunity to tug on my lapel about their pet miracle cures. Pendulum alignment, past life regression, orgone therapy, jackfruit enemas, a high colonic while listening to Eric Satie's sketches and exasperations of a big boob made of wood, you name it. Jarvis's mileage may vary from mine, but I recommend a thorough review of the medical literature, the battle-tested advice of any friends who've been there, and a doctor named House. Now that said, all of that said, I think the most confounding thing about the Johnson-Jarvis argument for more oversharing, more radical transparency, is its seeming obliviousness to the ways in which our nonstop social networking, let's call it the age of always connect, is dissolving the membrane between private I, letter I, And public self and this I think is one of the most fascinating and again sort of unremarked on cultural dynamics of the moment we live in you have the great privilege to be in proximity to Sherry Turkle who is penetratingly thoughtful on this point and I think is really an inexhaustible resource of wisdom on the questions of sort of subjectivity and identity in the age of digital uh, networking and social media So I commend to you her uh, new book. Um, I want to look at this idea of the dissolving membrane between the private eye and the public self. I think the most obvious uh, evidence of that cultural dynamic lies in those moments where the real and the virtual collide, where the sort of rubber meets the road. As I've argued elsewhere, I think the totemic technologies of our times... The cell phone, the iPod, the Blackberry, social media are turning our psyches inside out. I believe they're reversing the polarities of that hierarchical dualism or that philosophical binary, namely public and private. They make solitude portable, encapsulating the solipsistic self in a media bubble, right? So the notion that you are sort of a social atom, that you are alone, that you are inward turning, right? The bounded, centered self that McLuhan taught us was created by Gutenbergian media. People now take that out into the agora, out into public, and behave with the obliviousness that used to attach to the sensation or the state of being alone, And yet they are in public. Well, what do I mean when I say that more and more we're alone, oblivious to the world around us? Well, for example, the ubiquitous obscenity of couples sitting together in restaurants, each gazing vacantly into the middle distance as he or she brays into a phone, Right, or of people unashamedly texting away in the midst of social gatherings, or even more scandalously during movies. The screens glow, distracting everyone nearby. I recently witnessed a scuffle between a compulsive texter and another moviegoer who, in a paroxysm of irritation, snatched her phone out of her hands. I thought he was going to beat her brain to jelly with the cursed device. Unhappily, he didn't. Um, yet more dramatic evidence of the growing tension between electronic solipsism in public spaces can be found in the ever more common phenomenon of the stranger with the headset, chattering blithely about her irritable bowel as she elbows past you at the supermarket meat counter, right? I mean, in the medieval ages, these people would have been stoned as witches. In the modernist period, they would have been classified as paranoid schizophrenics communing with insane voices. You know, This is the moment where the devil's of le Don, right, meets the, uh, what is that weird thing people wear in their ears? The, uh, thank you. Um, so this idea that you walk down the street, right, there really is a transparent, hermetically sealed sort of projective or imaginative bubble of solipsism, of solitude, right? Of a kind of a sublime obliviousness. And it's a real neat trick. It's the idea that you are completely at ease because no one can see or hear you because you are contained in this digital envelope. Corporeally, you are present. But psychologically and cerebrally, uh, intellectually, you're really elsewhere, And at the dawn of the digital age, John Perry Barlow said, cyberspace, when asked for a definition of it, is where you are when you're talking on the telephone, well, not really, but he gets at something interesting there, which is this sense of sort of astral projection, right, of discorporation, of being discarnate. Um, I you know, am not wise in the ways of evolutionary psychology uh, or cognitive neuroscience, but it does seem to me just sort of anecdotally and experientially true that um, we do have this Darwinian tendency to... Uh, as Freud would say sort of introject right or cathect uh, and to sort of not only charge objects with sort of talismanic or totemic or fetishistic significance but to transport ourselves into them right so it's not that we feel we are entirely on, side of, on the other side of the screen but as the 70s comedy group the Firesign Theater usefully said how can you be in two places at once when you're not anywhere at all and that's sort of where we are in digital culture neither fully embodied nor fully discarnate right but sort sort of flickering somewhere between the two, not exactly occupying either space. I think the most grotesque example of this portable solipsism, right, the growing tension between, uh, as I say, solipsism in public spaces and any sense of privacy, uh, and the most appalling example of that is the cell phone conversation. I, I frequently, increasingly have this experience floating out of a bathroom stall, Punctuated by the unmistakable plop of a movement in progress. Is there a surer sign that Western civilization is in its terminal stages? We have no shame we are withdraw we i believe we are redrawing the boundaries of publicly acceptable behavior um, along medieval lines when privacy in the modern sense was virtually unknown now if you'll allow me this flight of fancy for just a moment and i am going on a bit am i okay ian fox yeah how's everybody doing right flatlining ready ekg shutdown okay um so what i was going to say is that i believe that the last time we saw a permeable membrane between public and private um, like this was the Middle Ages and if we look at Philippe Ariès's marvelous multi-volume series Private Life in the Medieval Ages we get a glimpse of what that historical moment was like and in some of the essentials, it looks a lot like ours. At the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid, the class pyramid, right? The poor code word serf, for those of you who have seen The Life of Brian. Um, I would say before the 12th century, 11th century, 10th century. Uh, well, absolutely. And, and I don't believe we consider the Renaissance the Middle Ages. Okay. Am I in the presence of a medievalist? I'll watch my P's and Q's. (laughs) One treads lightly in academic settings. There's always some specialist lurking. Well, it's interesting you brought that up because I just happen to be a philologist. Okay, so anyway, um, come, do join us. Uh, so in the me- in the medieval ages Philip Ariès in his multi-volume series uh, Private Life in the Mid- in the Middle Ages talks about how among the serfs everyone lives together in one large room in a stone farmhouse or cottage right oh, the proverbial hovel Um, and the livestock are quartered with the family right animals live with you they aren't literally underfoot when you're asleep there's a wall dividing the human quarters from the animal quarters right Um, but they're effectively under the same roof and um, all that's done between human beings is done through with the full cognizance of other folks of all ages right dying defecating uh, you know fornicating the whole uh, marvelous panoply of human domestic life and all of its very colored splendor. Um, and so I, I really think we're sort of returning to that moment. And what's fascinating about it is that McLuhan is quite useful here. McLuhan, I, I think, has many, um, makes many missteps But I am very much convinced by his argument that it's Gutenbergian technology, print technology, the popularization of the book, that gives us the bounded, solipsistic, sharply demarcated, inward-turning, reflective self of modernity, right? Not of postmodernity, but of modernity, that sort of reigns supreme and really gets going during the Enlightenment, that reigns supreme for much of um, the modern era. And so I would even go back further, uh, if you'll indulge me in this sort of flight of fancy, I believe that the self uh, as humans have known it throughout recorded history is really a technological artifact that it really is garbed in language and i like to use the analogy of the fulgurite when lightning passes through sand or through earth it leaves subterranean stalactites right that are made of they're sort of vitreous they're glass instantly created by the passage of sort of plasma electricity you shake them out sort of excavate them and you have these beautiful networks of rhizomatic networks of tubes right lightning itself has passed on right but the shell is there i believe that shell is the self uh, actually inside it is what we imagine to be the self the shell is language i believe that the self only really gets going with the birth of language because to imagine the inner dialogue the inner monologue the reflective narratorial voice that narrates the self into being without language is unimaginable i believe that uh, sort of you know Primitive, arboreal, hominids, right, sort of proto simians without language, uh, their thought processes are absolutely unimaginable to us, right? And absent language, we would instantly become unimaginable to ourselves. Language is the sort of Lacanian mirror that reflects the self as we know it. Deleuze and Guattari, the French um, critical theorists and anti-Oedipal psychologists, are useful in this. They give us the trope, who is the I that says I? And it's a marvelous kind of postmodern koan, right? It's this act of signifying, of speechifying, of naming, of incarnating in language is what gives us, I believe, the self. So why am I going on and on about this? The self is a technological artifact, and therefore I find it sort of deliciously ironic that now uh, new technologies are remaking the self again, I believe. Okay. So uh, back to the notion of the medievalization of the world we live in. Do we really need, I would ask, more radical transparency? Okay. And then, too, there's the question of the individual costs of oversharing or even just compulsive social networking. What unconsidered intellectual, spiritual, and psychological collateral damage are we inflicting on ourselves by being so outward focused, so terminally interactive? so frenetically social that we get a death letter and, quote, the instinctive response is, I'd better tweet this up right away. This is a disease of the psyche. Its primary symptom is the obsessive need to connect, blogging and tweeting and retweeting, liking and poking on Facebook, telling the world that you dig it and read it and stumbled upon it as if the world were waiting with bated breath. I think this is very revealing. This is partly about the media age article of faith that nothing is really real unless it's recorded and increasingly shared, right? Fixed in a medium. Unless it generates a simulacrum. This is the moment when the ghost of Jean Baudrillard takes a long, self satisfied drag on his cigar and blows a languid smoke ring, right? So Don DeLillo parodied this postmodern state of mind in White Noise, in the dryly funny set piece about, quote, the most photographed barn in America. Any of you read the novel? marvelous sort of uh, core sample of the cultural unconscious of postmodernity right on the cusp of it. And at the most photographed barn in America, tourists are so busy taking snapshots of the barn that as one character remarks, no one actually sees the barn. Everybody has experienced this who's ever gone to the Statue of Liberty or uh, Grand Canyon or Mount Rushmore. It's sort of a postmodern commonplace at this point, fairly hoary cliché. But here's a great, much more contemporaneous example of it that we can relate to that I think sort of resonates with our everyday lives. The New York Times recently reported on the trend among foodies of compulsively photographing food while the dish grows colder by the moment. I see the, the mortified nod that says, not I've witnessed this, but I've done it. <laughs> There's no shame in this room. Everything that happens in MIT 2105 stays in MIT 2105. Um, One guy arrived with the wrong lens or something on his camera and left his wife sitting at the table for an hour while he went home to get it, says a restaurant manager quoted in the article. Typically, people don't waste a minute emailing the images to their friends or posting them on Facebook or Chowhound, recording the moment, then sharing it with all the people who aren't here matters as much or more than experiencing the moment and savoring it with the people who are here. For instance, your wife, sitting across the table from you. Welcome to the dessert of the real. Um, so I, I think actually that chasm points up another binary opposition that haunts this post-postmodern predicament of ours, which is... Um, As my groaning pun suggests, you know, what epistemologists like to call the sort of chasm between the matrix and the desert of the real, between the online welter of free-floating information and images, the data cloud, and the unplugged world of immediate experience, right, sardonically and sort of referred to as RL with increasing disdain. Uh, between the face-to-face here and now, and the being-in-nothingness of our online lives, which are time asynchronous, unmoored from geographical coordinates, and easily uncoupled from our card-carrying identities—not to mention our physical bodies—I think something, there's something extraordinary. Again, you know, it's the it's the job of cultural critics to be the village idiot and to point out the obvious. To to you know. I'm talking about oversharers, and my job description is chronic overthinker, right? It's my job to sort of overthink or think into the ground everything. So I don't really believe this has been sufficiently remarked upon and sufficiently anatomized, this presumption that when the phone rings or Twitters or chirps or massages or pulpates or fondles or gooses or whatever you have it set to, right, that the voice or presence on the other end is by definition more interesting than whoever you're with, right? Christ himself would have to pause in mid-parable, right, for the blackberries nudge, right, if he lived in our moment. This is a, I mean, Really, think about this presumption. It really, talking about a, you know, historical memory, I find very useful as a reality check. History can be a sort of a reality check, just as socioeconomic difference and cultural disjunct can be a useful reality check. Thinking about the deprivations of people in the third world as we sit here in the lap of lavish entitlement is chastening. Yet similarly, there are historical moments that seem to sort of presage some of the cultural dynamics I'm talking about. I talked about the Middle Ages, but this idea that a sort of phantasmagoric or spectral other world of luminiferous ether is far more compelling than the corporeal world in which we're embodied reminds me a lot of -of turn-of-the-century spiritualism, right? This is the stuff of which table rapping and ghostly violins and trumpets playing in midair is made, right? And so, again, I think that it would behoove us to sort of dissect a little bit our reflective, unthinking presumption that the other elsewhere or else when is always richer, deeper, more beguiling, more charismatic, more fascinating than the unhappily embodied creature right in front of us. And those of you uh, who have uh, taken art classes, who know Roger Shaddock's marvelous book, The Banquet Years, Study the birth of avant-gardism at the turn of the 19th century and then throughout the early 20th century. Alfred Jarry, Guillaume Apolliniere, the French symbolist poets, right? Early Dada and so forth. All of these incredible... Avant-garde movements, the wellsprings of which are still nourishing vanguard thought in the arts and and transgressive and insurgent uh, intellectualism, were born at dinner tables, right? Just as the Enlightenment coffeehouse was the sort of petri dish in whose agar, you know, uh, sort of the Industrial Revolution as we know it, was cultured so the banqueting table for surrealism, Dada, futurism, and the other great sort of vanguard, bohemian, transgressive movements of the madhouse of the modern get going around dinner tables. And a dinner table whose discourse is constantly interrupted by the beckoning uh, bugle call, right, of luminous spectral voices on the other end of the blackberry would never have given rise to these movements, I believe. Okay. Okay. So, uh, how are we doing time-wise? How are you doing paper-wise? I'm doing great. How's everybody doing? Okay. Oh, my. Okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. So, uh, all right. Then, yes, fine. Uh, we'll see. Uh, right. I'll wrap it up quickly then. Um, so... I want to dissect yet another aspect of this, and I want to return to Johnson's uh, time essay in which he argues that something is lost in not bringing our private selves, for example, the intensities of sex and romantic love, his quote, into the online space between privacy and celebrity. Johnson calls this liminal zone the valley of intimate strangers. Taking the private public enriches our souls, he implies, and makes the public sphere a better place. This is a popular idea these days. Somewhere in the world, there exists another couple, I'm quoting from his essay now, that would benefit from reading a transcript of your, quarrel, your lover's quarrel last night or from watching it live on the webcam. Everybody get that? I feel I have to reread that. Somewhere in the world, there exists another couple that would benefit from reading a transcript of your lover's quarrel last night. Or from watching it live on a webcam. Even a simple what I had for breakfast tweet might just steer a nearby Twitterer to a good meal. Unquote. This is so reality challenged, so head in the data cloud, it's effectively its own rebuttal, at least to anyone not life casting live from Laputa. What exactly is the benefit to a pair of strangers, I ask, in reviewing the unredacted transcript of last night's reenactment of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, starring me, my wife, and the better part of a bottle of Rumplemin's? let alone watching the whole sordid affair on a webcam? Undoubtedly, someone somewhere would watch this and maybe even claim to benefit from it. But there are people who claim to benefit from two girls, one cup, for Christ's sakes. Have we no sense of decency, sir, at long last? As for the argument that we must always connect so that some passing twit can have a good meal through our random act of kindness, oh, ick. All right, so in all seriousness... I think this focus on oversharing and his more virtuous civic minded manifestation, you know, Jarvis's transformation of his blog to create a space of solidarity, compassion, and shared expertise, and his decision to publicize his cancer in order to spread the gospel of early detection overlooks the fact that too often our motivations in taking our personal lives public through technology have nothing to do with advancing a wider public good and everything to do with our media age fixation on fame. When Johnson argues that his Valley of Intimate Strangers is a much richer and more connected place than the old divide between privacy and celebrity worship was, he's forgetting, I think, that connection doesn't always equal intimacy. That exhibitionism can be a form of social dominance and that we fetishize fame more than ever. Now, if you'll just endure me for a moment more, I want to make two last quick points that I think are tremendously important. Ian, would you mind opening the folder called Zombies? Yeah. And I want to touch just briefly on the notion of self and crowd. The crowd has become a kind of a, uh, kind of a totem in our age a kind of a mascot, if you will, a sort of a signifier. Um, and what's really instructive about this, I think, is that not so long ago it was very reviled, okay? So I think the, the politics of metaphor are really worth attending to closely. Metaphors don't come free. They always have hidden costs. They cage our thought. They structure our historical and cultural moment. And I think that the metaphor of the wise crowd comes with some hidden costs, and I think it speaks very eloquently about the moment we live in, this moment of connectedness and nonstop social networking in which the self is kind of populated by media fictions, even as paradoxically and simultaneously, it's extruded, blob-like, and it kind of colonizes the agora or public space. Okay, So what I want to say very quickly here as I wrap up is that the symbolic uses we make of crowds, and there really needs to be, and I, I give this to you freely as a dissertation subject, um, a kind of an archaeology of the crowd. I don't mean a a sort of sociological or mass psychological analysis of crowds as actual uh, historical actors. I mean, um, following Ian's comments about what I do, a sort of an analysis of the discursive politics of tropes like crowds, mobs, gangs, uh, that dearly beloved and largely forgotten figment of the 30s socialist imagination, the masses, okay? Uh, These days, we're very fond of crowds. And I think this, this sort of use of this metaphor is very revealing about us as a society and our historical moment you see here images of zombies, right? Which is sort of the dark doppelganger, I would argue, to James Surwicky's wise crowd, right? And the thoughtful crowds of Wikipedia, right? And the leveraged intelligence of crowds on, you know, Twitter and on Facebook and on Tumblr, right? So these zombie walks are very f- uh, popular these days among, uh, I presume that you kids know all about this sort of thing. Um... But not so long ago, the crowd was a reviled figure, right? So in 1895, the sociologist Gustave Le Bon publishes The Crowd, A Study of the Popular Mind, which is a shudder of elitist horror that portrays the masses in the streets as society's id unleashed, easily seduced by propagandistic images and overmastered by the primitive urges of the reptilian brain, Le Bon's crowd was anything but wise, However, by contrast, today we're converted to a fundamentalist faith in the wisdom of the crowd, and we cleave to the principle that immersion and interaction through social networking and communications devices is by definition preferable to the unplugged self alone and uncoupled from social worlds or the media feed. I've been talking about Jarvis and Johnson media gurus who are very fond of societies of mind, a term coined, of course, by Marvin Minsky right here at MIT, and the wisdom of the hive and so forth. Um, In our age of social networking, time enshrines you, which is to say everybody as its person of the year. And we've reversed the elitist trope of the crowd as a bewildered, ungulate herd enthralled to political agitators and propagandists and we've reimagined the popcorn crunching million as a wise crowd. Clay Shirky talks all about this and parables of anthills and beehives are used to talk about uh, swarming humans as change agents. Now, after the, anatom- the atomization of the mass market into a million micro niches and the death of mass culture, we've morphed oxymoronically into a crowd of individuals, social atoms who manage the neat trick of retaining their individuality and mass, or so we're, we're told. But I believe the, the zombie is the other side of this, right? Reading the zombie as a social text, we can relocate the living dead within the history of mass psychology. Zombies are close cousins to LeBone's conjuration of the hypnotized individual tossed on the heaving sea of the crowd, a slave of all the unconscious activities of his spinal cord, no longer himself but an automaton who is seized to be guided by his will. So what is the zombie's essential quality? more so even than his inescapable corporeality, which is already a strike against him in the digital age. It's his herd mentality, if a brainless brain-eater can be said to have a mentality. Zombie is a collective noun, unlike the lone wolf werewolf or the night-crawling vampire or suburbia's serial-killing slashers, Jason, Freddy, and their kin or the torture-porn boogeyman of the Saw franchise, the undead exist only in mass, faceless faces in a frenzied crowd. But unlike the crowds who ruled the modernist century, the phalanxes of brown shirts thrilling to Hitler's spittlefleck fulminations, they don't even have a leader. Mindless, directionless, zombies can't dance, and they sure as hell can't goose-step because their brain-dead groupthink incarnate. And now for the end of my talk i'll just return us to facebook and to sort of a personal anecdote of an ex- one last experience that i think is instructive there friend requests keep coming in despite all of my <laughs> public proclamations about facebook that I find sort of deliciously ironic why am i on facebook right Uh, to promote brand me, ostensibly, right? In other words, for entirely selfish purposes. So, recently, a friend request from the restless dead of 1978, the shag-haired, bong-loaded banquos of my high school class keep arriving in my inbox. And then one day, my inbox pings... Too perfectly, it's someone from my dear dead high school days, from the class a year behind me, yet another someone I never knew who has added me as a friend on Facebook and needs me to confirm that I knew her in order for us to be friends on Facebook. I find myself thinking of Raymond Chandler, an almost pathologically private man who would have found abhorrent the transparency of our fishbowl selves, the awful grabby neediness of our compulsively gregarious age. And yet, instructively, Chandler was a conundrum. He was a confirmed misanthrope, an inveterate recluse. He was haunted late at night by a self-imposed loneliness, and he warded it off with a bottle of gin and a dictaphone, composing letters to exercise, quote, that horrid blank feeling of not having anyone to talk or listen to. A difficult man, he characterized himself as an unbecoming mixture of outer diffidence and inner arrogance. He found epistolary friendship more congenial than face-to-face interaction, as many terminal texters now do, according especially to Professor Turkle. Quote, I don't know why you are so close to my heart, but you are, he wrote to a female friend, in some mysterious way. You've put me inside of you so that I have to lie awake at night and worry about you. You a girl I've never seen. Why? The older you get, the less you know. Even in his despairing last years after his wife had died, he shrank from human contact. All my best friends I have never seen, he wrote to one correspondent, to know me in the flesh is to pass on to better things. Maybe Facebook would have helped. Thanks for your indulgence.
1: Yeah. Yeah, OK. All right. So we'll, and we're recording this, so I guess if you could use the microphone. Who would like to start us off? Go ahead. And please introduce yourself.
3: Yes. Where you are, where you're from. I'm Robert Solomon from here in trillennium Corporation. Uh, the, a couple of things I'd just like to perhaps elaborate on. One is, uh, first of all, this whole thing of taking pictures of your food. is a whole big move now. People are taking pictures of their turds and ma- emailing it to each other. So it's gone up a notch. Um, Gone, Yes, however way you want to look at it. Also, this is great for psychologists because I know in Manhattan and other places you just sit down at a Starbucks and someone comes down, they take out their cell phone and from the sky somewhere this telephone booth comes down completely acoustically uh, and they can say whatever they want and you can be noting it, you learn a lot, you can get a lot of good dialogue. Um, Quick question. One is, um, uh, could you relate this to this epidemic of self-centeredness where you have these societies where, you know, self and family, community going up, and there is some value going up that. Of course, Japanese and certain Asian societies, it's the extreme the other way. Uh, uh, And second of all is... uh, what are, your, what are your warning signs if, as, this, as, as this has happened and as it will continue? What pathological things are happening? What incapacities are we getting as a species which if we don't heed and figure out ways of consciously reversing uh, will cause serious problems on one hand or not let us achieve what we could have achieved rather than becoming, having this as our, our uh, 21st century opium den?
2: Well, I'm not sure I'm adequate to the task of ask, answering such a a um multi-pronged question, but I'll I'll take a swipe at it. First of all, I'm loath to give aid and comfort to the digital jeremiahs. I mean, I've spent my entire lecture doing strafing runs on the um uh, uh, on on the professor panglosses of digital culture who um Seem to have a blind spot for any of the social pathologies you've just gestured toward. Um, but they have their Tweedledums in, uh, there's a whole flock of books by people like Lee Siegel now and Jaron Lanier um, about the corrosions of social media and digital culture that inveigh against um, a lot of the proclamations made by people like Clay Shirky and Stephen Johnson. And I don't believe in either Scylla or Charybdis. I believe that we live in a very bifurcated moment when... These traditional sort of binary oppositions that we use to structure our ontology are really kind of coming unmoored from each other. So it's not an either or, it's a both and phenomena. In other words, yes, Twitter has been absolutely central to a lot of the revolutions in the Middle East, as has Facebook. And the sort of lightning dissemination of information through those cultures into the wider world has been very much aided and abetted by social media. Similarly, I mean, even in the age before social media, television could and and on rare occasion did play a crucial role as a sort of a positive vector of transmission for um, sort of humanitarian um, endeavors, right? So in other words, disasters in the third world, when they were plastered on the screens, of the first world, right, sometimes resulted in enormous outpourings of charity and sort of humanitarian um, aid, all right. So I think there's an interesting phenomenon going on there. But all of that is counterbalanced by the cultural dynamics I talked about in my discussion. And one of the problems is that when you are aware of Phenomena in the third world, disasters and so forth, and you're constantly exposed to it through media, whether it's bottom-up, sort of rhizomatic social media or uh, legacy media, sort of the dominant corporate model. Um, you experience this sort of empathy burn as a result, and it's sort of the irony of more and more exposure. Um, but it it really seems to me that it's difficult to either demonize or sanctify these phenomena. And I might have given you the impression that I think they're um, kind of carving the epitaph of culture as we know it. Um, I actually don't believe that... You know, 14-year-olds uh, taking cell phone snapshots of their old, own bowel movements is going to bring our civilization to its knees. Um, I think it's sort of instructive about the moment we live in and sort of changing social styles. Does that in any way address your Well, if I had to lay the burden of responsibility for social pathologies pathologies on anyone's doorstep, I'd lay it at Lloyd Blankfein's doorstep. You know, <laughs> I'm an old school Marxist. I think, in in that regard, you know, not thoroughgoingly, but to that extent, I think the absolutely grotesque and obscene chasm between the 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 deliriously well rewarded 2% of our population who holds 80% of the personal wealth does more to corrode our society than all the photograph bowel movements of the world laid end to end you know just you know if you're if you're looking for things that are sort of agar's culturing social pathologies you know i believe that preposterous disparity um in terms of the allocation of scarce resources is ground zero or sort of the, the quintessential causal causal factor for that kind of thing. Now in terms of sort of selfishness, um I do think that there's a very peculiar phenomenon going on and I'm loath to channel Gustav Le Bon and be the calamity howler of our moment about, you know, ever greater levels of social pathology. But you know, these parables that you read in the news magazines about the guy who was egged on to commit suicide, you know, threatened to do so, and immediately, you know, a whole flock of vultures settled down, you know, to wait until the guy finally did take his life. You know, Encyclopedia Dramatica, 4chan, Anonymous, the troll phenomenon. I mean, there's no dearth of examples of extreme social pathologies. But you want extreme social pathologies? Read about the French Revolution, where the guillotiner, um, you know, stripped off Marie Antoinette's Mons Veneris and wore it like a goatee and capered with the bloody trophy on his chin before a howling crowd. I mean, you know, the the French Revolution, the Jacobins, you know, the Paris Commune give us Uh, images that makes the Saw series look like veggie tales. You know, so it's important to juxtapose historical moments with our own. Um, I think we have a little ways to go before we get there. Other questions?
4: Hi, um, my name is Xinghua Li, and I teach uh, media studies at Babson College. Um, So I have a question about the audience agency. I mean, the the users agency. So you have, um, you know, your smartphone, and I have my smartphone. And do you think that um, we have the same, um, you know, subject versus um, object relations when we're using the same device? Do you think that you know, whenever you know we are using, you know, we're. we're Buy into this whole cell phone device. Does that mean we all have the same type of subjectivity? Um, the reason I'm asking this because recently I've been reading about psychoanalysis, like case studies, and there was talking about the difference between like the obsessive versus the. Um, hysterical, so the obsessive would do something that's kinda like um, some cell phone users. They, for example, in a sexual situation like the, the male, you know, usually obsessive tend to be male, I don't know, according to the case studies. Um, the se- obsessive would arrange, uh, w- would be having sex with a hysterical woman, and then at the same time he will arrange another woman to call him on his phone so that um, he will be, um, you know, he be having sex with a woman and then talking to the woman, another woman on the phone, so that he will maintain his kind of autonomy. You know, like I'm, I never lose myself completely to the other. But um, so in this case, the obsessive is never really there in, in either way. Uh, the other, on the other side, is the hysterical woman. She would, um, you know, having sex with the. Auth- man and then she would imagine herself not being there because she refused to give herself fully uh, to the other she wants to keep part of herself uh, so that she can continue being desired by the other so uh, in that sense the hysterical is also not fully there so in the sense that do you think that these two situations could happen when we're using all the same cell phone you know just because like, the cell phone doesn't determine a certain subjectivity. It's really up to the individual, do you think? Thanks.
1: Sure,
2: would be much better if they were texting. I think that's one thing. Um, well, I'm relieved to hear there's a question in there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> um, your uh, question brings... Uh, due to my upper lip and a blush to my virginal cheek. uh, All this talk about uh, hysterics and obsessiveness. Um, I haven't heard women referred to as hysterics since Freud's studies of hysterical women. So... uh, Right. Right. If I not to be flipped, but I mean, I do shrink from terms like hysteric and obsessive they They have a bit of a reek of craft ebbing to me, and they they do seem as if they're sort of vintage nineteenth century sexology. Uh, you know maybe i I haven't reviewed the case studies you have, and uh, maybe I need to catch up on the literature, but I am somewhat suspicious of the the lexicon of pathologization, especially when it's so um, complicit with. Uh, conventional sexology which has a lot of crimes to atone for in my book Um, but I will quickly say that if I understand the question in essence it is um, are we do we acknowledge the legitimacy of the McLuhan-esque worldview that is to say kind of um, far extreme technological determinism in other words do our tools mandate a certain sort of either social use or communication style or are we able to reimagine repurpose the tools right and more of a what romantics like William Gibson the cyberpunk author would call you know the street finds its own uses for things right um the notion that we can appropriate tools to our own ends I mean it seems to me that um again I fear this sounds like hedging um, but both to a degree are true so um tools do seem to have a kind of an animistic presence to it. They seem to have an indwelling uh, spirit, right, that sort of governs their usage and inflects them, right? And the Turkle book I mentioned earlier, right, um, her latest is all about the ways in which digital devices are driving a certain sort of social style. She has unbelievable, again, parables um, that really are straight out of the age of table wrapping, Teenagers who claim that they can sympathetically feel, psychically, their blackberries buzzing in their lockers, right, half a corridor away, even when they're in class, right, they've been forbidden to bring their tools to class, but they are so psychically joined with these things to use Freud's helpful term, they have cathected them, they have invested them, right, with so much um, sublimated, you know, erotism, right, that they claim, they can feel when they're buzzing, you know, that's really extraordinary. Um, and so the compulsive need to answer every text, to answer every incoming call, there does seem to be, and, and I'm loath to say this, I'm, bear in mind I'm sort of theorizing in free fall here, so I, in response to your question, because I want to give you some sort of answer. I'm not sure I entirely believe this, but the devices do seem to engender a sort of obsessive-compulsive quality in in a lot of people right now conversely it also seems to me that the different perverse appropriations of them you've just mentioned um instruct us on the point that people can make unimaginably strange uses of devices i mean and certainly the whole history of technology one thing that's sort of hilarious, is that the first unintended use of seemingly every modern communications technology has been pornographic, right? The VCR is probably the best example of this, but it's certainly not the only one, right, the webcam, right? And daguerreotypes, you know, the very fur you know, phenokistoscopes, right, stereopticon, you know, these uh, uh, magic lantern viewers that exploit the uh, uh, binocular Uh, apparatus of um, the retinal cortex of vision, right, to create 3D images, you know. No sooner is it invented than there's a proliferation of pornography. And people think of Victorian England, you know, as this tightly corseted place with pantalettes on piano legs. They also had a vast, thriving black lagoon of unimaginably perverse pornography that makes ours look like child's play, right? So, um... And my point is that that's about technology, you know. I mean, I don't know that they're in that moment that wireless telegraphy was used for the equivalent of phone sex, but it wouldn't surprise me in the least, right? So uh, that's the long answer to your question, which is that I think the the devil finds um, ways to make new technologies his handmaiden right? But at the same time, there does seem to be a kind of an indwelling spirit um, as sort of a genus of a lot of these tools that encourages certain sorts of behaviors just based on the software and hardware, that they're more f- felicitous to certain things and infelicitous to others. Take my uh, prerogative
1: here, and then I'll pass it on to as the other we, we got a little time yet, so everybody have a chance. Um I, I want to, uh, I guess, take the uh, conversation in a little different direction, and, and one of the things I'm interested in, uh, of course, I sympathize with a lot of things you're saying, and I agree. I think a lot of the shortcomings we see in social media are very accurate and, and widespread, and, and this complaint that we've lost manners, you know, we haven't developed the manners to live in this new technological world, granted. Right. And I, and I guess that's, that's the, the, one of the things I'm wondering is if we can get more specific about that we and that self. And, and so w- the reason I ask that is that, I mean, I, with all the shortcomings of Facebook, certainly it, it's true. And, and we can look at the other platforms as well, um, except that one of the things I'm, when I think about social media, I don't think of it primarily as a technology, right, that I don't think it makes sense. Uh, to define social media as Facebook any more than it makes sense to define music in terms of the CD. Uh, And so what I see instead is that with this social media moment, uh, and I I felt it looking at the cyber culture moment too, uh, but that in the social media moment What we have, rather than the technologies, is a new context in which we understand what media is and does. In other words, that we're moving from an era in which media was a conveyance of an image or a message uh, to an era in which media is something we do. We participate in a social network. Uh, and when those social networks are weak or reaching across to people, contacting people we don't really know, uh, then it is meaningless. It is empty. It's, it's, it's rude. It's stupid. It's pathological. I agree with all of that. However, what about these other kinds of moments? And, and I, I, I think that, if we're going to get over the shortcomings of social media, media, it may not be hectoring people in terms of how to be more polite, but rather in finding those examples that can inspire us to something better. And, and to give a concrete example, one of the ones that struck me recently is this site called It Gets Better. It's the It Gets Better project. It's done by this uh, Dan, Savage. Dan Savage sex columnist and his partner Terry Miller, uh, beautiful gay couple who were... Uh, Devastated by recent uh, suicides by young gay uh, teens um, in high school, and so they created uh, a website, uh, or basically it was just an idea for gay adults, LGBT adults, to do talking head testimonials to say, don't kill yourself. <laughs> once you high school, you're going to put up with bullying. Uh, it, it's going to happen, and there may be nothing you can do about it, uh, but it gets better. And, and there's a community of people out there in the world that once you get out of high school, uh, you know, don't kill yourself now because it, it will get better. And it does, it does this really interesting thing. I mean, on the one hand, they say, you know, what well, if we could get into the high schools, we could tell them this directly, but it's impossible will be thrown out by the PTO, by the, pre- the the principal of school, by the parents as promoting pederasty or, or gay lifestyles. And so he says that that's impossible. But with YouTube, we can be that voice. Uh, and that there was this, and it's really interesting to me because it, it on the one hand, it, was, it's the worst of what I think of as social media, where it's boring media, it's a talking head, you know, on a webcam. It's, it's nothing interesting about that. It's also a relationship that is very superficial, right? I mean, when these kids will watch these videos, uh, they're not, they're not going to know these people. They're probably never going to meet these people, maybe can't even contact these people. Contact might not even be welcome, probably wouldn't be welcome by these people, and nevertheless right? It gives that sense of a community, right? And this is where that question of the we being the American public versus that we being a smaller kind of scene, uh, especially those that are, are feeling attacked by the mainstream, shows a kind of potential. And I say, aha, you know, this is not technological, it's not interesting as media spectacle, but as an example of how a specific kind of community can emerge in this empty mediated space, it strikes me as, aha, this is a direction to move in and what might there not be lessons to gain from that. And, and if that's the case then I guess I'm curious to hear what might be other kinds of like, well here's a step in the right direction or here's a way I can see we move because I, I, I hear all the, the complaints about politeness I just don't think we can make people more polite. I think they're going to take pictures of their poop if they want to and, uh, and download music too uh, you know? and so that's okay we need to point to something beyond and I'm curious if you have ideas about that.
2: Well, first of all, I, I I dearly hope I'm not tarred in the memory of everyone who attended this in the in the in, in the 140 character Twitter synopsis of my talk as the uh, you know as the psychic brother of Michael Medved and every other conservative com- calamity howler who believes that again because people are taking cell phone snaps of their bowel movements that civilization as we know it is is um, passing wind and expiring. Um, I'm grateful to you, Ian, for uh, bringing up the example of Dan Savage's campaign because I, does th- I do think it gives the lie to the notion, notion that um, new media, digital media, specifically YouTube, um, and it's, it's a vexed question as to whether or not YouTube is really social media. It's interesting because the question of whether or not YouTube is a community in the sense that even Tumblr is a community or Facebook is a community or old-style, early 90s um, ASCII, chat boards were communities or second life is a community is a vexed question and really better answered by sociologists like Turkle who've done due diligence um, doing serious boots on the ground ethnographic reportage of like Henry Jenkins does with fan cultures of the people who spend much of their disembodied lives there so that's let's set that aside for the moment but the question of whether or not um, you know sort of electronic connectivity is always the happy bed fellow of social pathologies, and whether or not it has a coarsening and desensitizing and vulgarizing effect unilaterally on our society, obviously that's a straw man. I didn't argue that nor would I ever nor would I ever argue such a thing. Um, but what I think is interesting about that versus facebook is that the only i chose facebook because i could have been a million miles wide and a millimeter deep i chose to be a millimeter wide and hopefully a mile or two deep today focusing on one species of and probably the best known um, corporate owned privatized commons where growingly millions of people spend their social lives um, when they're Having an out of body moment, um, as opposed, you know, it's simultaneous with the cell phone and so forth. Um, and so, what's fascinating to me about that is that it uses the oldest form of data dumping, you know, of data retrieval in human history, which is the story. Basically, it's people reciting personal narratives, you know, which takes us back to the Lascaux cave paintings, practically, right? Okay, those are codified, and they're deeply sort of embossed with the presumptions of the tribe, right? But they also have these marvelous individual handprints on them. I was here. This is my story, right? And I think the Dan Savage narratives... Um, harness a whole series of cultural tropes, whether wittingly or unwittingly, right? Again, the confessional, you know, Pyramus and Tisby whispering to each other through the crack in the wall, right? There's a feeling of kind of hushed, breathless intimacy to them. You feel that you're alone with someone nakedly revealing something seriously personal and, two, there's a visual element, right? Now I quite disagree with you, respectfully. Well, you said a moment ago—that uh, I was talking about social media—use I, I think what was implied there, and I and I don't. I'm not saying cuttingly, right? Uh, but you were you seem to be suggesting that there's sort of an old school McLuhanesque paradigm in which I'm thinking about media and kind of a Claude Shannon information technology information theory sense, right? I of you the channels. Yeah, channels channels of through. Fair enough, right? Whether we're talking about reader response theory, right, fan cultures, active audiences, right, it still presumes a kind of an old, if you will, almost a Frankfurt Marxist model, right, of channels of communication, right, transmitters at one end, receivers at the other. And your point was media is now not messages we send. It's something we do, right, as if it's this... um, sort of sensory deprivation tank we're floating in and it's warm to just the right level where we can't really tell the difference between where our body ends and media begins right and I guess I would contend that simply because if you look at the quintessential example of social media whether you accept that it's paradigmatic or not Facebook right well people are to use your parlance, doing media there, but what are they doing? They're sending messages, right? The atomic unit of Facebook is, you know, the post, you know, typically fairly pithy, similarly on Twitter, right? So let's be clear. It's a very old form. It's epistolary. It's the letter, right? Okay. But it's a threaded letter. So it's Just so many things are liminal now, and that's what I'm pointing out, that we're incarnate, yet we're discarnate, right? We are sort of post-postmodern, and yet we're still dragging this decaying evolutionary remnant around, right? Okay? You know, we're tethered to our workstations dizzily overflying luminous fields of information, you know, at millions of bits per second, right? While this rotting, morbidly obese, you know, Darwinian carcass slumps over the keyboard somewhere a million, you know, bits behind us, right? So there's this disjunct all the time. And one of the disjuncts in social media is that it's frozen speech. Never forget, you're reading, right? It's writing. It's electronic writing. Same thing with texting, right? But it's in this liminal space, and not many people, I believe, are exploring this. Maybe they are, and I would be happily enlightened on that point. But it's neither speech nor writing, or rather, it's neither sort of colloquial extempore conversation entirely or entirely literary in the old school sense of Epistolary communication, right? The letters of great novelists, right? So it's this weird in between neither nor both and thing. It's coagulated speech, it's frozen utterance. We read it as writing and it's composed as writing, but it has the rhythms and sort of reverberations in our inner audition of speech. That's weird. I think that's really strange. And I think it's doing something to us. What? I don't know.
4: Hi, I'm Darcy. I'm from uh, Washington, D.C. area. So you said earlier that uh, nowadays we can't have that uh, old-fashioned dinner table atmosphere because we're constantly interrupted by cell phones, et cetera. Um, Would you say that maybe the Internet, the constant connectivity, could become a different, a new dinner table? And would you say that something good could come out of that, or is it not possible because we never leave that dinner table or because there's far too many people at that dinner table and they're all shouting, or because we have to invite everyone, including weird cousin Lenny, who doesn't say things that are relevant to the conversation. <laughs>
2: <laughs> As you may have noted from my lecture, I I believe, in digre- I believe digression is the soul of conversation. I believe in the point of not getting to the point. Um, but I, I didn't precisely say that we can never have the sort of dinnertime colloquy that the Surrealists had at Surrealist banquets or that the Enlightenment gen- gentlemen scholars had in the coffee houses of the 18th century or that the Dadaists had at their absinthe-sipping, uh, you know, cafe tables in the Belle Epoque. I simply said that, um, first of all, um, All out myself as an unreconstructed McLuhanite in one sense, not thoroughgoingly, but in one sense. I do agree with McLuhan, and I think he remains very useful, and that is that he's always and everywhere thinking about the disjunct between mind and body, between technology, between sort of culture and nature between Darwin and Freud if you will and I think that bifurcation that antinomy is very useful because Time and again, we're caught up short and we get a reality check when we think about the corporeal, not specifically the genetic or the Darwinian, right? The DNA helix has replaced the crucifix as the sort of talismanic, uh, you know, religious image of our time. We're all compelled to kneel at the altar of, you know, cognitive neuroscience and evolutionary psychology, right, are the new sort of flagship discourses uh, to which everyone is expected to bend a knee, right? And not a week goes by without the discovery of a new gene for something, right, that was previously believed to be a mere social construction, right? What we forget is that buried on page 50 the next week is a retraction of that inevitably, right? Gene uh, for homosexuality not discovered after all, right? Right. Uh, so the, the revelation gets banner headlines. The retraction, you know, is a tiny item back near the Omaha Stakes ads just before the classifieds. Um, but my point is that I think that um, the corporeal, right, as opposed to the specifically genetic uh, and the specifically Darwinian I'm splitting a hair here. Embodiment is a very useful corrective to the excesses of what, in my '90s book *Escape Velocity*, I called cyberbully. Right, which is sort of religious, transcendentalist, often millenarian rhapsodies and homilies about the liberatory potential of technology. Well, let me give you a specific example of this. We were given to understand in the '90s, right, that we would be like David Bowie and *Man Who Fell to Earth*, watching fifty televisions at once, taking it all in. Right. Come to find out. Out, we're really actually very bad at multitasking. We think we're great at multitasking, and Jen, whatever, right? XYZ, what are the youngest of you? Jen, we have to start over again now with Jen A, I guess. Um, you know, have been. Uh, sort of schooled in this received truth that you are sort of born to multitask. Unfortunately, there's this phenomenon that cognitive scientists and neurologists specifically call the forebrain bottleneck, right? And it's the legacy of Darwinian evolution, which is that just in terms of our cortex, we're really, really bad for a whole complex of evolutionary reasons at processing multiple stimuli. That's why when you're simply talking on your cell phone, I don't mean texting, I mean talking on your cell phone when you're driving, it's the equivalent of having had three cocktails. Studies show this, right? Off the charts, uh, vehicular accidents with the introduction of the cell phone. Now, it's self-evident that texting while driving is suicidal, right? But What's interesting is that, and and I'm sort of skating on thin ice here, but what little I've read in the popular pre- press leads me to believe that even just carrying on a conversation while you're driving with the person beside you is almost as dangerous as talking on a cell phone, right? So we don't really do distraction very well. How does this relate to your question about the banquet? It relates in this way, that um, a strange thing is a aborning. We are witnessing the birth of a new psychology. We are sloughing off the reptilian skin of a previous modernist incarnation and becoming post-postmodern in which we have multiple windows open in the self all the time. Turkle deployed this metaphor in her book The Second Self, and I find it a useful one, right? Which is that we are attempting, and McLuhan talked about this, he believed that we sort of attempt ontologically, epistemologically, but mostly psychologically, we sort of attempt to mime our tools. We exteriorize our functions, he taught, right? And then he called it the nar- sort of narcissus complex. We try to emulate those apotheosized, right, or exteriorized qualities that we've relocated in our tools. So what do I mean by this? Well, windows the windows paradigm right and this whole idea of multitasking and the distributed self which is a sort of an artifact of massively parallel processing right it's something computers do very well right? distributed cognition and so people at dinner tables are now starting to believe they can be everywhere simultaneously attending to you discreetly getting the text under the table Taking a call when they need to, right? Now we all drift off. I mean, throughout history, I, you know, I, I'm convinced, you know, that when somebody maundered on, as I'm doing right now, right? Few of you probably balancing your checkbooks, right, or thinking about, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, but I think that now there's a new sort of self-aborning, which ironically. Is sort of facilitated by technology and sort of gives life to all the postmodern soliloquies to boundary dissolution and multiple selves and anti-edible selves and sort of these figments of the postmodern imagination extolled by Deleuze and Guattari and Aloquaire and Stone and other critical theorists of the 1990s, right? The belief that the sovereign, phallocentric, enlightenment bounded, centered, hardened male self the autocratic self the monarchial self should be overthrown by this paradigm of the hive self the anthill self the termite mound self which which was thought was thought to be more consonant with feminism and with a sort of a marxist notion of the masses right okay that we contain multitudes and those multitudes are going to rise up and overthrow the homunculus in the pineal gland or wherever you know descartes chose to locate it um, so i think that at It's not that we can't have great surrealist revolutions at the dinner table. They're just a hell of a lot more difficult when everybody is discreetly checking his text under the table.
0: Well, I think we have time maybe just for about one more brief question and uh, and brief... (laughs)
5: Hi, I'm Janet Wasserstein and I'm an MIT staff member here. Um, There are 600 million members of Facebook and uh, I'm actually not one of them. (laughs) I'm probably the only person in the room who isn't a member of Facebook. And the reason, one of the reasons is that I usually don't like to do everything that's something that everyone else is doing. But uh, more to the point, and here's the question for you, is I'm originally from England, and English people are very private. And I can't bear the thought of, you know, putting myself out on Facebook and a high school person contacting me from X number of years ago. So the question for you is, um, have you looked at the cultural context and how different people in different countries um, do social media and on Facebook, and does it affect how they they look at privacy?
2: In other words, no text, please. We're English. (laughs) Um, It's an absolutely fascinating question, and I'm grateful to you for asking it. The short answer is no, I haven't. I believe that others have done so. Um, I I. Do suspect as someone who's a great fan of um, English wit and English writers and the the, the pugilistic combative uh, gloves-off style of English literary feuds, um, which does uh, unlike Americans um, doesn't scruple at um, soccer hooliganism between literati. Um, I am I am interested in English culture and it seems to me, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that the English are growingly less um, repressed, stiff upper lip, call it what you will, private I think was your less charged term. Um, is that so? Would you agree?
5: I think that they are more um, circumspect and don't really like to um, put it all out there. I mean, I think the only example, Hyde Park Corner is, is still uh, amazing to me because people do get up on soapboxes and talk, but I could be wrong, But and I've lived here a long American time. <laughs> but I, I think that the English are a little bit more um, circumspect and private that way. Could it be a generational matter? I mean, I wonder if the young... That's true, yes. Uh, that's, that's probably very true, yeah.
2: Disappointingly, I don't have any um, anything terribly trenchant to say about that, except that it 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 fascinates me no end, and I do wonder how that British sense of re- reserve, um, which is very much a part of the national character, as you point out, is changing in the age of digital exhibitionism and whether or not things like sexting, uh, you know, the transmission of naked photos of yourself through your cell phone, um, among adolescents, which I'm given to understand from my 15-year-old, is um, rampant over here. I'd be curious to know if it's every bit as ubiquitous in England. Do you know? No, I don't. It's a very good topic. For research. Well... <laughs> Everyone in search of a doctoral dissertation, take a note. <laughs>
1: exactly. I was in uh, Tokyo, actually, the fall to study uh, social media, and they said the same thing. They said, oh, us Japanese. You know, we, we don't like that idea. We would never put ourselves out there and do that kind of thing like you Americans do Facebook. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I remember in 1995, I was told then that the Japanese will never do email either because we're a face-to-face culture. And now they text more than anyone on the planet. So here we go.
6: Cheers, thank you. Um, My name's Onomik. I'm a visiting fellow here at CMS MIT. I'm also English. And um, I'm not sure, actually. I don't know if you can, I don't know if we can generalize that much um, in terms of, yeah, whether English is more private and so on. You could, I mean, which kind of brings me on to my question, which is about kind of Facebook globalization capitalism. and I was interested by, I'm not sure if this was a central part of your argument, but you definitely gave some time talking about how the kind of what you see going on on Facebook kind of harks back almost to this kind of medieval time, this pre-modern times. And I just wanted to ask you whether you think, you know, and maybe this might appeal to the, to the old school Marxist in you, but whether this is just like a story about commodification. You kind of talked about it um, when you talk about well, Facebook, obviously, and we were talking about we see the commodification of social relations. But why I think commodification might be quite a useful concept, because yes, it talks about, it refers to how capitalism attempts to totalize society and culture, and how that produces a psychosocial social pathologies that you've talked about in a very amusing way, actually. I really enjoyed your talk. But then also, it kind of is useful because commodification, as well, in its attempts to totalize, is also contested. It's complex it's an ambivalent process which then can explain the contradictions that ian for instance talked about in his question so i want to uh, basically i just wanted to see maybe hear you talk a bit more about this harking back to this medieval middle age time or whether this is just another late capitalism post postmodern, as you talk you know mention i don't know if that's
1: yeah and yeah it's almost like a uh, a self commodification right as a as a pseudo celebrity i wonder
2: well, i 'm grateful for the question because it 's a very thoughtful one and it provides a nice springboard into um, into an area that i didn 't have a chance to treat at great length in my talk um, and and so to to your point about whether or not this Um, makes the recovering Marxist in me rise in the in the last pew of the choir and and uh, belt out a lusty uh, hallelujah chorus Um, yes I I think you're spot on you've put your finger right on the nub of one of the things and and quintessentially that thing which Facebook does above all others which is to commodify social ties Um, you know the sort of yuppie battle cry of the 1980s enshrined on a million bumper stickers was he who dies with the most toys wins and he who dies with the most friends wins on Facebook, right? And the, and, and, and of course it really requires of us that we interrogate the term friend and ask what it means to have a phantasmic friend um, on Facebook. When I took Jarvis to task for... Um, talking at great length about uh, his bodily functions under the rubric of um, sort of a civic virtue. He said, I'm not addressing you, I'm addressing my friends. And his blog has a following of many thousands. And it seems to me to be the merest credulity to believe that every man jack of them is well and truly his friend. I mean, really, what does friend mean at that point when you have this vast rhizomatic network of um, Intimates, uh, devout followers, family members, hanger-ons, and hangers-on, and in the back row, um, those who cordially loathe you, uh, because every comment thread on his blog has a few spoilers who come to rain on the parade and who are there to sort of poleaxe him whenever they can. But you you mentioned Marx. I mean, and you mentioned the medieval ages. I'm not sure what I can add to that historical invocation, but I will say. You know, one of the most sublimely poetic moments in Marx, probably the most quoted passage of of the many quoted passages that make him, you know, second or third to Jesus Christ, among those routinely quoted, you know, all that is solid melts into air, right, is the the sort of disquisition on the cash nexus, where he talks about the age-old relations of the feudal power structure, of feudal class structure, and the feudal economics being swept away by bourgeois capitalism. And he says... That capitalism, this endlessly revolutionary force, will sweep away family ties. Uh, sort of the privileges of ancestry, tradition, and in its place leave nothing between man and man, right? The only social tie will be the cash nexus, right? That is to say economic transactions. Well, in some perverse way, Facebook does that because, again, it operates in this phantom zone, this sort of liminal, sort of uh, fog-clouded, social, um, no-fly zone, right, where... Um, yes, we're friends with people, but they are also a sort of social capital incarnate on two legs, right? They are sort of valorizing our standing, our cred within that community. So the more bodies we can stack up, you know, in that pyramid of um, uh, of fame and power and uh, community standing, the better. Um, so there's a strange dynamic there that I think adequately earns the term commodification. You know, we're absolutely transforming every friend into you know every time a friend is minted, you can almost hear the clink of coin and the penny piggy bank of you know self-aggrandizement. I mean, it builds your your standing you know there's an uptick right in your sort of stock ticker you know within Facebook uh, every time you know you make another friend and and your number goes up it's the quantification of it with a number you know I'm that popular you know I'm that cool and damn it people like me you know it's sort of Stuart Smalley meets you know Gordon gecko there's something very odd going on there <laughs> so I mean I do think that it 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 invites Marxist analysis for sure, and and also let us not forget that again we're the products being sold to branders and marketers and demographers and and so forth, and so we are a kind of a, a capital right there, you know, that's being mobilized and sold.
0: So you, you, in some way, danced around what seemed to be a kind of Latourian perspective so we have this kind of uh, uh, media actants along with human actants kind of in, in a system of exchange with, with with each other so that's in contrast to say the the parody of uh uh, uh Ian's perspective that we we media is what we do uh, now or or the kind of other uh, the the McLuhan determinist perspective uh, uh, right that that you also sort of mitigated earlier and my question is uh, Well, well recently I've been working on issues of identity representation sort of across uh, platforms. So whether virtual world characters, uh, uh, profiles in... Uh, in social networks or uh, profiles even in commercial sites, and one of the interesting things that we find is that while well, the infrastructures are actually quite similar at, at, at some level right we have flat text fo- profiles we have s- certain types of abstract data structures we have numerical statistical representation, so we have a number of these kind of computational affordances that we use to uh, to rep- to represent ourselves and the the issue then uh, one of the issues for me is that well who makes these tools, and when the tools are made, they tend to encode a particular type of, say, folk categorization of of, uh, 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 of social categories. The fallout of that is that despite the difficulty of maintaining multiple selves uh, that you describe, that uh, folk model of multiple selves is implemented in infrastructure. So that's privacy settings that we must use to uh, mitigate ourselves for different audiences, uh, right? The... The self you want so your your grandmother to see versus one you want your your colleagues to see, or similarly in uh, in, in games, right? The Sherry turtle's analysis: What avatar do I want to use today? And so the, the question is, uh, as we move towards the, the the kind of more ecological perspective, say integrating what uh, what uh, you and Ian both talked about, looking at these systems exchange. Well, what would we do in in the face of of the the fact that infrastructures? Uh, reify uh, a, k- a kind of model of identity that's based on the notion of multiple selves that maybe uh, well, that others like uh, cognitive scientists like uh, George Lakoff and Eleanor Roche have argued, well, that's not the way that we actually uh, think. That's not the way we actually categorize ourselves. So uh, in our work, we, we've been trying to uh, uh, use uh, AI techniques and, and sort of related techniques to think about uh, what, what are the kind of emergent structures that come from, from the data? And, and so I, I'm mentioning this just because you say, say for example, well, it's the, the, this uh, uh, quantified, you know, Gordon Gekko, uh, uh Stuart Smalley kind of, kind of uh, self on Facebook. Well, there are people who are working on something like a, a, a metric for... Uh, uh, Tie strength, for, for example, right. There was an emergent metric based on kind of affective qualifiers and some complex uh, kind of alchemy of uh, of uh, data uh, data structures and algorithmic processes that seem to suggest a kind of tie strength that, that isn't just a number. And so, uh, right, 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 a strength between right relationship ties. And so, this is just one algorithmic approach.
3: Right
0: so uh, right right so this 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 tie strength it's not not my work but but the, but there is someone who al- tries to algorithmically this is so this is not built into into Facebook but is trying to say well at least how much can we say is is built into into the data you know how much can we say that the you know, based on certain modifiers based on you know the actual co- connections right well you can say a bit more right I, we don't want to go too too far there that's so the, the, the summary is, is just that. Well, we have these uh, that we have infrastructures that are built for representing multiple selves in the face of this uh, fact that that, that you've uh, told us, which is that well, we don't do multiple selves uh, uh, quite uh, you know very well. This distributed selves. Cool. Well, what 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 you know, do we develop new technologies for this, or uh, maybe you can just uh, talk about that that uh, that conundrum that we find ourselves in.
2: Wow, Uh, trying to drink from that fire hose. Um, It's an extraordinary question and a very stimulating one. Um, I I respectfully submit to you that you're conflating two entirely different points. One is our um, neuroanatomical inability to manage multiple uh, incoming stimuli at high speed, right? This is why... The sort of cyborgian fighter cockpit of the 90s, rhapsodized about at some length in Stuart Brand's hagiographic book about the Media Lab, never really came to bear in battlefield theaters, right? Because, um, again, the four brained bottleneck bedevils the military's desire to cyborg the fighter pilot, right? Ideally, the fighter pilot is, um, you know, Neo in the Matrix going. Bitchin'. I know karate, right? You stick a neural jack into your skull, um, you know, the entire summa of human knowledge, you know, about weapon systems is downloaded in one giddy cranium uh, ballooning moment, you know, where you can hear the sutures of the guy's skull creaking, you know, from the sheer data deluge. And then an instant later, he rips it out of his skull and says, awesome, I know everything, right? This is the dream, right? The problem is, um that uh, again it's you know sort of the lamarckian fantasy versus darwinian reality right it's this sort of our genes versus our memes right we desire to uncouple from this desiccated aging you know liver spotted waddled shell and leave it behind. well i speak for myself uh, a <laughs> few of you are a perkier looking than i am Um, but, you know, we desire to leave it behind like the spent terminal stage of a rocket, right, and ascend into some sort of platonic realm of absolutes or some tear de chardinian noosphere of pure luminiferous ether right the data cloud cyberspace use whatever religious term uh, you know uh, accords with your own uh, secular cult right but meanwhile the body is the drag coefficient always bringing our dreams down to earth with a sort of a gut jarring thump okay so there's that there's the neuroanatomical Darwinian practical inability to manage multiple nested windows of the self simultaneously. But contrary to that or antipodal to that is, as you quite rightly point out, right, what Daniel Dennett and other philosophers of mind talk about when they talk about our multiple selves, right? And they interrogate the very notion of the self. Is it merely this sort of miasmic sort of cloud of philosophical methane gas that arises from the purely mechanistic processes of cognition, right? Is there really an I that says I? Or is it just sort of a figment of the linguistic imagination? So that's a very interesting question, right? But they're two separate questions in my opinion and I think to to loop together what you've just said and the point you were making about the commodification of the self I want to return to that if I may and you know we have the history of theories of the self as a gradual demolition of a monolithic, coherent, sharply demarcated, inward turning, you know, sort of circumscribed, sovereign self, right? Freud gives us the useful parable of the haunted house, right? This is why in The Shining, right, the id is sort of cowering in the basement. The superego sort of moves the levers of power. The superegos are always like, as in Fritz Long's Metropolis and Blade Runner, right? They're always at the top of the sort of ziggurat of power you know the teledyne building or whatever it is you know high above cloud cover you know moving the levers of power and well there they are right there and and so um and then somewhere around the middle is the ego sort of you know mediating between the the head and the hands or so to speak or the head and the id Um, but so it's a gradual process of demolition. Then you get the anti eatable philosophers, right? You get Deleuze and Guattari. You get R.D. Lang. And it's the renegade... Uh anti-Freudians of the 1960s and 70s and 80s um, extolling the virtues of boundary dissolution, as I said earlier, in multiple selves, the rhizomatic self, this sort of um, anti-capitalist, anti edible schizoid self, right? And the schizophrenic becomes this, the schizophrenic is another social actor, right? Who's another romanticized figure who stands in contradistinction to the crowd, right? The self as crowd, right? Uh, you know the sort of inner multitudes all right but what's interesting about facebook to return to your marxist question and to tie all this together is that facebook i see as a sort of hyperbolic terminus right or final whistle not final but most recent whistle stop of the commodification of the self that in america is very weirdly um merrily in bed with the Judeo-Christian notion through Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress of the perfectible self, right? So the self becomes an object, an object exteriorized, viewed in a vacuum to be lathed into a new shape. And for Americans, the self is very much a project, right? Through the cha- through a religious devotion to the stations of the Nautilus, right? Endlessly aerobicizing, yoga-izing, You know, um, jogging, uh, you know, flogging, uh, dieting, right? And, uh, you know, endless pro, the great books program in the 1960s, um, sort of middle-brow babbittish ang- class anxieties about being sufficiently culturally literate—you know—it it never goes away, baby Einstein. And if you have, you know, friends with little kids, right? This desire to always sort of ramp up the individual and scrabble up the class ladder by improving your intellect, this. Endless regimen of sort of self punitive, self flagellating perfection of the self goes hand in glove with the branding of the self. And in the 1990s, you get through Wired Magazine and the sort of religious breviaries for anxious middle managers that are churned out by the business press, you get the notion of brand me. You don't have a personality, you have a brand. You are a brand. You are a personal brand. This is this works well in free agent nation, right, where we've all been downsized and stripped of our health care and our retirement benefits and so forth, right? So you're a walking brand. That's why I'm on Facebook, to extend my brand, right? Uh, you know, sort of a tale we tell ourselves to make all those hours frittered away, friending and defriending seem useful. Um, so I do think that it begins with Ben Frank. Franklin's, um, you know, autobiography of Ben Franklin, and all those homilies about self-perfection, and it continues right up through all the great business literature of the fifties and sixties, which is always religious and managerial, Ogmandino's, right, The Greatest Salesman in the World, an extraordinary book that imagines Jesus Christ as a great door-to-door salesman, right? Dale Carnegie, okay, How to Win Friends and Influence People. He's a former minister, okay? So th- there's always a confluence of religion and sort of sales theory, managerial theory. And I think that it very much comes to ground in Facebook where, as you point out, Facebook allows you specific taxonomic Categories of self-definition. What do you like, right? So the things you possess, whether they're actual objects or opinions, affinities, likes, never dislikes, only likes, right? Define you, right? Do you have a spouse? Do you have a job? What bands do you like? What movies do you like? You can imagine another alternate universe following the logic of Borges' parable about the Chinese emperor, right? Who creates bizarre taxonomies that don't follow the Wunderkammer or the Cabinet of Curiosities, but are weirder by an order of magnitude. He divides the universe not into, you know, the classic sort of clades, you know, the classic evolutionary categories, but rather, you know, things that are red and only have one leg, you know women who are bald, you know, he's got these completely surrealist taxonomies, you can imagine another universe in which Facebook has, uh, allows you to create your own categories rather than bracketing you within these established ones. But I do think it encourages this branding, a sort of a social branding that borrows the parlance of the marketplace.
0: Uh, I, th- I think we're on the same page in some way because the second self that you uh, – the second uh, topic of multiple selves that you mentioned, I think the issue I'm raising is that it bumps up against the, f- the first notion where we have to manage uh, th- through our, our – our, uh, limited, but but uh, 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 but but on some hand uh, uh, astounding processes of backstage cognition. We have to now manage these multiple selves, and the issue is then these tools like tie strength or like other tools. They seem to be a kind of eruption responding to the fact that we have. That second self that you mentioned is now built into software. Whether it's the kind of Borges, Borgesian self or the kind of more everyday self, it's built into software. Somehow we have to deal with uh, that. So, uh, uh, and now uh, tools are erupting. Also, interesting social pra- practices are uh, erupting. And so, I just wanted to, to sort of hear you uh, riff on on, uh, on those uh, those responses. But I, I note that we're past uh, uh, six, about so. I'd actually just like to... I, I...
1: You, All right. yeah join me in thinking Omar uh,